The Buddha spoke a great deal about the preciousness of, of human life. In fact, in, if you go through the Buddha's teachings, it can be quite elaborate descriptions of different realms of existence. Uh, realms, the human realm is one of them, animal realm another, even hell realms and heaven realms, uh, sort of extremely unpleasant places to be and uh, very, very pleasant places to be. And um, I think it's probably healthy to hold um, these descriptions and hold even the fact of, the, of their existence with some healthy skepticism in terms of what the, whether the realms actually exist outside of ourselves or exist within us. But what the Buddha did say was that despite all the suffering, all the difficulty that human beings encounter, and we certainly encounter our share, um, that uh, the human life, the human birth, was uh, the most uh, valued, the most precious. If you read some of the descriptions about the heaven realms, if you're ever inclined to, um, sometimes it's difficult to believe that we have it uh, better than they do, um, because it's often worlds of where there's no pain, and, uh, no discomfort, even no human body itself, uh, but basically bodies of light. Uh, and when I hang out my own body, I sometimes crave uh, that uh, sense of lightness uh, that, that uh, I don't really experience all that often. But why he think, uh, why he valued life so much, why he felt that life was so precious, why it was considered the most precious of all the different realms was because he recognized in both his own work and his own practice, his own work with his own suffering, in his own enlightenment, he recognized that, uh, that all of us, everybody in this room, all human beings outside of this room, have the seeds for their own enlightenment within themselves. That's extremely precious and rare. So we have the seeds of awakening within ourselves, whether we know it or not. We all have the potential within us to transform the suffering that we encounter, to change things, to not necessarily respond to our conditioning, not to be limited always to the, uh, by the past, by our conditioning. And that kind of freedom, that kind of freedom is, is, is universal, that, that potential. Why we have this potential is because we have certain powers within us. And Narayan spoke about the five powers. And tonight I would like to focus on one of those powers, and that's the power of mindfulness. Because mindfulness is really the key. And it's clearly what we're uh, spending an awful lot of time practicing here, is developing mindfulness. Because we understand that this is the key. This is the key that opens the door. It opens the door to other possibilities. My guess is that nobody in this room would be here tonight if one didn't have at least a little bit of faith, a little bit of inkling, some experience in the past that allowed us to see for ourselves that there was another way of being 
that something other than the usual, other than the habitual, other than the condition was possible, that is possible to change ourselves, to discover freedom, to discover the end of suffering. But that's possible. It's within our powers. And it's the power of mindfulness that allows us to do that. Mindfulness is this capacity that we all have. Once again, whether we recognize it or not, it's the capacity that we all have to be aware, to attend, to pay attention without any judgment at all. It's the power to be with the experience exactly the way it is. Exactly the way it is. And it's free of all fixed ideas, concepts, opinions, images, views. It's a power that's free of all of those. And so that allows us to begin to see our experience in a new way. That's the power of mindfulness. It allows us to see life to meet life in a very direct and unfiltered way. And that opens up the potential within us. Another description of mindfulness, a description I like, well-known description in the Zen tradition from Suzuki Roshi, and he describes mindfulness as the beginner's mind. Beginner's mind. And what Suzuki Roshi said was, that in the, beginner, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the experts, there are few. It's in the beginner's mind, it's in that mind that's fresh and alert, that knows it doesn't know, and is willing to look very deeply, interesting, with a lot of intention, a lot of clarity, looking in order to learn mindfulness is looking, learning to meet our experience with the intention to learn, rather than to be an expert. Maybe a year and a half ago, or two years ago, we were sitting around the dining room and uh, behind the scenes there's a staff room, probably some of you have heard sounds of laughter and talking coming uh, from behind those doors and uh, we're sitting often very social unlike what it's like here. And uh, it's always nice to come out into the silence, into the retreat after we've eaten a very noisy, busy lunch. But uh, one time we were sitting around chatting and uh, someone named June, who is a staff person now, she works in the office and personnel department and her husband Brock had moved to Barry and, uh, and they brought with them their daughter Kiko. And at this time, about a year and a half ago, Kiko was I think, I'm not very good with children's ages, but I'd say she was somewhere between 18 months and two years old. Anyways, uh, she has a tendency uh, to to get a lot of attention uh, when she shows up. She's very, very cute, um, and uh, we're always happy to see her come come to the table, um, and uh, she gets a lot of attention. So one time she was sitting at the dining room table, and uh, I was watching her very intently, uh, and she was sitting down to eat. And uh, she had a very unique way of eating, uh, which was, you know, she would like take her spoon and turn it upside down and kind of play with her food, and then every once in a while a little bit would make make itself into her mouth. 
And then she'd pick up her fork and do some really strange things with her. And she knew we were watching and she was very present, but it didn't matter. You know, it, it, it definitely didn't matter that she was kind of breaking convention. She probably enjoying it. Uh, but there was a tremendous amount of freedom, you know, you could see in the way she was eating. In the, in the fact that there were no fixed ideas about the way it's supposed to be, that you hold your spoon with your right and your fork, I don't know, is it with your left or whatever. Um, but it, it, convention wasn't part of her universe at that time anyways. Um, to me, that's beginner's mind. You know, it's that mind that's fresh and open, that doesn't have a fixed idea about the way things are supposed to be. It's not to romanticize what it means to be 18 months or two years, because there's a lot of suffering that goes on there too. Um, but there is that capacity to look at things in a very fresh way. There, there is that capacity to play, to be light, to hold experience in a, in a less serious way. We also have that capacity for beginner's mind, even though we're adults and, you know, really deeply conditioned by now to follow all convention. In fact, uh, uh, you know, beginner's mind doesn't really have that much to do with throwing out uh, all of our conventions. In fact, uh, you know, this isn't a recommendation to start playing with your food around the dining room table. Uh, You probably end up uh, disturbing a bunch of people around you. Um, so it's not so much the outer form of what you're doing when you're eating, but more it's the inner quality, the inner presence of is it possible for us, you know, who have sat down to, oh, thousands and thousands and thousands of meals, uh, is it possible for us to sit down and eat for the first time? For the very, very, very first time. You know, where we pick up a spoon and we actually feel the weight of the metal, you know, where we smell the food for the first time, where we taste the vegetables. You know, without that judgment or criticism or opinion, I like this, I don't like this, you know, but really just be with the experience and taste it, see what we can learn from it. Can we open up to the pleasure, you know, fully being there, without our opinions, without our ideas? And we can, because we have that capacity to be mindful. That's what it means. Mindfulness means meeting the breath, meeting each moment of your experience without fixed concepts, without ideas about the way it is supposed to be, without even trying to control the experience. But also as adults, you have to face a reality. And that is uh, that we're not two years old anymore. And we've had lots and lots of training and our minds are conditioned in very profound ways, very deep ways. And one of the things that we're discovering, if you haven't uh, known that uh, before this, is that uh, certainly it doesn't take long when we begin to sit and walk, uh, when we start hanging out in silence, when we start hanging out with ourselves in this kind of alone space that we're in now, that the mind is incredibly untrained. In other words, the mind is not present with our experience. It's not with each moment of the breath, one moment after the next. I would love to have someone come into an interview and report that they're with each moment of each breath at all times. Uh, I would certainly invite them up here, and I would move down there, and uh, I would be thrilled. Um, Or I would also think maybe they're not so sure about what's going on in their experience. 
because we're not all that mindful. And that's what practice points out. And sometimes that's a difficult lesson to learn. And one of the reasons why we're not mindful is because we're very, very, very preoccupied in our thinking. We're deeply lost in the world of thought. And Ryan mentioned that, you know, it's kind of an addiction to thought. And I was sitting watching my thoughts this morning, and one thing, one, one quality that I hadn't seen before with thoughts is there's this tendency, it's almost like it's a, um, some kind of a, a relay race uh, where the thoughts travel along a certain way and then there's this baton and that baton gets handed over uh, to another set of thoughts. <laughs> and then we think about those thoughts for a while and that person for a while and then another link is made and then we go on in this endless race. And for some reason, we never seem to get tired of it. <laughs> you know, we just keep doing it from the moment we wake up to the moment. And those thoughts are always enticing. It, it feels like they're going to take us somewhere. You know, it's part of the seduction of thought. It's the part of the seduction of fantasies that we think it's going to take us to a place where we want to get. And so much of our thoughts, and one insight that comes out of people who've been practicing for a while, you know, we've been watching their minds hours over hours, you know, month after month in some cases, um, is that the, t- the thoughts do be- get to be a little bit boring after a while. And you begin to see the fact that there's a lot of old tape loops. And there's actually a limited set of tape loops. Uh, we don't have that many creative thoughts. We just kind of keep working and working over all the, all the old stuff, all, all the old stuff, one, one version or another, one person or another. We just put another person in and we start thinking about them in the same way. Um, and so, so thoughts are, can be, um, can get pretty old pretty fast. It's important though in practice to recognize that thoughts are not our enemy. You know, there's nothing wrong with thoughts. Thoughts are going to be part of your practice for a very, very long time. You know, practice isn't, isn't meant to try to get rid of our thoughts and to empty our minds so that we don't have any thoughts anymore. That's not the intention of practice. If, that, if, if you cling to that intention, you're in for a lot of suffering because thoughts are going to be around for a while. Rather, what we're trying to do is not uh, be so lost in thought, not to be so preoccupied in thinking, um, even when we don't want to think. You know, we all need to think, we all need to evaluate, we all need to figure things out in our life. But a lot of times, we don't need to do that. You know, but we do it compulsively. We keep getting caught over and over again into the world of thinking for one reason or another. And the, and the problem with this preoccupation, the problem with getting caught, it's not in the thought itself necessarily, but it's, it's in this ability to get lost and absorbed in it, is that it tends to disconnect us from the present moment. Because all our thinking is about what's happened in the past or what might happen in the future. And it, what it does is it, it, we, we tend to disconnect from the activities that we're engaged in. In the sitting practice, we're making this valiant effort to be with the breath. And yet, you know, it's, it's, it be, or to be in the body, within the body breath. Uh, you know, we put a lot of our time in. We're well-intentioned. We think the practice is important. Um, but at the same time, our thoughts keep pulling us out in, you know, more and more. Uh, all the time, we're getting pulled uh, further and further into our thoughts. And every once in a while, we remember to come out. You know, once in a while, we remember, ah, wait a second. I know what I'm doing here. I'm in Barrie, and I'm sitting in this hall for the nth time. 
I'm not really enjoying it too much, but I know I'm supposed to be watching my breath. Uh, so let's get back to the breath. And, and so that happens a couple of times every sitting, and the rest of the time we're, uh, we're off to the races, um, off to that relay race. The Buddha was no dummy. He recognized that fact. You know, he had, he had observed his own mind and saw the fact that his mind was very deeply also preoccupied in thought. And the genius of the Buddha, not just that he realized that, because even for some of us, uh, we realized that pretty quick too. Um, but what the genius of his was is that he came up with a way you know, I mean, to, to him, it was a very big challenge when he had his own enlightenment experience. You know, there was a question about really whether to share the teachings because he recognized that, as many of us have been on the path for a while, we recognize how difficult the path is, and how, but also how profoundly deep it is uh, and how, kind of how much effort it takes to do it. You know, that kind of gentle perseverance isn't something that all of us are willing to do, and he recognized that. But what he also recognized was that... Um, Liberation was worth it, you know, and that we all had the seeds. So how could we develop this, this potential? You know, how could we develop this potential? And the genius is, is I, I think anyways, and uh, found appreciation for it, is that um, he came up with a, a, a way in, a practice, you know, because if we were left to our own devices in that sense, without a practice, without a discipline, without a way uh, to, to work with all these thoughts, you know, the chances are, the vast chances are that we would get, we would just be swept away by the thoughts, that, that that's what our universe would be, would be the thinking mind. You know, and there's a lot of suffering in being always swept away in the thinking mind. And what he discovered was, well, let's start paying attention to the body. Let's use the breathing process, this process that all of us, it's also universal, within being a human being, this process that's going on. As long as we're alive, this process of breathing is going on. So let's use this process, these very concrete sensations, you know, because breathing is not thought. You know, there's sensations, there's movement, there's pressure, there's contact, and it's happening at all moments. Whether we're sleeping or awake, the breathing process is happening. And so let's use this as our anchor into the present. Let's use this practice as a way of cutting through some of this preoccupation. Let's begin to train the mind to pay attention to what's going on right now. What's going on right now with the breath and with the body. Let's nurture that ability to be mindful, that potential, that power that we all have. Let's use it. Let's limit the field of attention to the breathing and the body at the beginning until the mind begins to settle down, until we begin to nurture this ability to observe, to know, to meet experience in a very direct way, in a sustained way, in a way that allows us to learn from the experience. And so that's what we're doing here, is we're spending a lot of time, and the, the instructions will change as the retreat unfolds. But the early days of a retreat, we spend an awful lot of time, you know, really in some ways exclusively focusing our attention on the body and the breath. And the reason is, as difficult as it is, 
and we can see that with that wandering mind. As difficult it is, it's more, it's generally for most people, it's much more accessible to be mindful of body. It's there. We can feel it. Than to be, just to open up and try to be mindful and to try to observe the thinking process. The thinking process tends to be much more powerful and much more compelling. It pulls us away much more easily. The body is an anchor into the present. It brings us more fully into the present. And it allows us to begin to cut through that preoccupation. The mind begins to stabilize gradually over time. And we're able to be in the present moment for longer periods of time. We might notice the entire in-breath once in a while or the entire out-breath once in a while. You know, instead of just catching a glimpse of it every once in a while at the beginning, we might notice a few breaths during a sitting, you know, rather than one in-breath. And gradually what's happening is the mindfulness, that ability to be there, is growing. And so that's what we're nurturing. Another aspect of our minds, another aspect of our lives that limits the possibilities, limits us recognizing this potential um, within us, is uh, the power of habit. And Ryan talked about that some uh, last night. Don't underestimate the power of habit. What continues to amaze me is how high we function in this world, in this world of relationship, you know, how much we achieve, how much we get done. Um, the fact that we can go through uh, really almost all our activities during the day. We can wash, we can shower, we can brush our teeth, we can eat. We can do all those things. And the first moment of mindfulness we have is that moment when we walk outside and we're free. And we're enjoying ourselves. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I'm here. You know, so much of our activities we're not really there for. And yet we do them. And we, and we can do them because they become habitual. Most of the time we're somewhere else when we're doing activities. Or at least we're just, we're just kind of halfway there through activities. We manage to eat. We manage to do all these things. But not really be fully present. Okay. As you probably know by now, I think I mentioned in an opening night, uh, we teach at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and we do a lot of classes, a lot of different forms, a lot of different teaching forms. And uh, one of the forms we do is a classes, series of classes, and we introduce uh, homework, these different practice groups. We introduce homework, uh, mindfulness homework. Every week we do an exercise where, um, where we take on a specific mindfulness practice, some aspect of our life that needs attention, and one of the first uh, homework assignments, in, in the introductory class anyways, is um, uh, being mindful while you brush your teeth. You know, and everybody kind of laughs at that. They think, oh, I, I came here to learn meditation and he's telling me to brush my teeth. Uh, and, you know, the dentists like this practice, but mostly people don't like it. Uh, and, and all of us know, you know, how do we brush our teeth? You know, we fly, you know, we just try to get it done. We're either going to bed or getting up uh, to do something that we really want to do. And so we do it very habitually. And the mindfulness practice, when you start bringing mindfulness to habitual actions, 
You know, when you start bringing your attention to things that we do very unconsciously and very automatically, lo and behold, like magic, it doesn't always happen in the, every moment or whatever, but lo and behold, over a period of time, we start trans- that habit uh, falls away. Uh, the experience itself is no longer habitual because we're present for it. The definition of habit is that you're not present for it. When you bring mindfulness to even the simplest habits, the simplest experiences, it changes the experience. All of a sudden, there's possibility for meaning, for learning to happen in the most simplest experience can reveal profound truths. There are many experiences, especially in the Zen tradition, where you know, somebody observes the leaf dropping. You know, something very simple, a sound, you know, anything, something small, and you know, the mind just opens up to a radically different understanding of life. It's the simplest things that can reveal the deepest truth sometimes. But if we re- rely on habit, if, we're, if we try to just kind of get by, you know, because we're in a hurry to do something else, well, then we miss a lot of our life. There's a lot of consequences in living habitually, and one of them is that there's a lot of discontent and a lot of dissatisfaction builds up because we do things habitually. We feel disconnected. You know, things don't mean that much to us when we just go from one thing to the next in order to do the next thing. It's always the next moment that's going to bring it to us. So we have to question that. We have to question this whole way of living in such an habitual way. And it's not easy to change habits. It's not easy to approach things in a new way. But the way to do that, and everybody in this room has that potential, everybody in this room has that capacity, which is to be mindful. All you have to do is begin to pay attention. And you're present. You're open. You're connected. And anything can happen. It brings a lot of interest and joy and enthusiasm when we start paying attention, when we begin to open up to life, when we take the simple things and we find ourselves there. Because it's the, it's the quality of attention that's going to bring us satisfaction. It's not in the experience itself. It's the quality of presence. That's where we're going to feel a deeper level of contentment. If we think contentment is in pleasant things, or, you know, inherently in pleasant things, well, you know, we're in for some disappointment because pleasant things arise and pass away and then unpleasant things kick in, and that means that we have to get that pleasant back, and that creates a lot of dissatisfaction. Rather than meeting life with a presence, with an openness, with a joy, with an enthusiasm, with mindfulness, then the simplest things can give us joy. The simplest things can open the door. You know, the walking can become quite habitual. And I, I, I don't mean just walking because that is a habit. Um, but the walking meditation, you know, it's easy for you to kind of skim it along. Well, I'm doing my walking. You know, I'm varying the pace and I'm walking back and forth and I'm being quiet. I'm not looking around. Uh, but you're not also paying attention. Uh, you know, you're somewhere else. And, and often uh, walking, it's a wonderful opportunity to do a lot of planning. Um, people, people like to plan when they walk. I think about other things, sometimes planning the next walking period even. Uh, you know, you're walking indoors, but the next one, you're going to be walking outside. That's, that's the fruit. Uh, you know, uh, thinking about meals, thinking about all that. Lots of, you know, uh, walking can be quite habitual. 
And so what you want to do with the walking is, once again, not to get into any kind of striving or crunching down. That's not what we mean by paying attention. It doesn't mean being overly vigilant, like, oh, I have to be with every step. You don't want to take that kind of energy into the walking because that's going to create a lot of tension and there's going to be a lot of disappointment because it may not go the way you want it to go. But more, it's just it's this very gentle perseverance. Okay, I'm doing the walking. Let's see if I can be aware of just the touching. You know, the mind spaces out. It starts planning. You walk back and forth a couple times without even being connected to the feet or connected to the body. Okay, so you wake up to that and say, oh, okay. So you wake up when you stop and you turn. That's why some teachers will say, pay very careful attention to the moment that you're turning. Because that's when we stop. And that gives us a chance to stop and feel the stillness, and be mindful of the turning, because that will interrupt sometimes that flow of thinking that can get going with the walking. So you might be a little bit more mindful when you stop and you turn. But remembering, mindfulness is light. It doesn't mean that we're going to be light doing it, but mindfulness itself, which is what we're trying to develop and cultivate, nurture, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a new power that we're trying to nurture. So it doesn't happen right away. But mindfulness is light itself. You know, it's not heavy. It's not serious. It's not analytical. It's not trying to fix things. It's just this light, uh, Narayan mentioned it even in uh, the last sitting, it's loving attention. It's that ability to attend to the experience, fully present, yeah. without commenting or criticizing. It's just being, knowing that experience from one moment to the next. Very light. Another habit that we have uh, developed, and it's kind of unfortunate in ways, um, another habit we've developed is this, is this tremendous habit to compare, to evaluate, to judge, to criticize, to analyze, to figure out, to fix, to become to be seen in a certain way, wanting to think of ourselves in a certain way. Okay. That's another habit that, that, that comes about. And what the Buddha described, this particular habit, was the, is the suffering of becoming. This whole notion, this whole desire, and we probably see it in our sitting too, you know, this whole thing of wanting to become a good meditator. You know, if I do enough retreats, if I work hard enough, I do everything that everybody tells me to do, I'm going to become a good meditator, I'm going to get really good at this and then I'm going to experience peace. Well, you know, that kind of energy, it's the expert energy, that, that wanting to become, uh, can really rob us, once again, of the present moment. It can rob us of any joy that we might discover in practice at all if we're so busy trying to be good at something. Um, I mentioned an opening night that I was on staff um, in the late 70s, early 80s. And... Um, back then, you know, meditation wasn't as popular. Um, we didn't work as hard as the staff people work now. There weren't as many courses. Uh, we were, we had a lot more freedom, a lot more time. We were always taking kind of long lunch breaks and disappearing in the summer to the local swimming hole and doing all sorts of neat things, enjoying the country. Uh, and um, I remember one day, one, a friend of mine on staff discovered these tennis courts on the other side of Barry. Uh, and I'd never played tennis before. It wasn't part of my growing up. I played football and things like that. Tennis was like a little bit out of my class, I guess. Um, and um, so he, you know, talked me into 
coming down with him. We borrowed a couple of rackets and we, we went down and we started playing and you know, the courts were really nice. They're out in the country and nobody, nobody was taking, taking the courts, you know, in the city. You can't find an empty tennis court. Out here in Barry, nobody's playing tennis really in the summer. Maybe they are now, but they weren't then. So the courts were open and it was really pretty. And uh, we had a great time. You know, we really enjoyed ourselves. I mean, it was tremendously invigorating when after lunch. I, I, I can even remember the day. It was just uh, a lot of fun. Uh, and it was a real break from practice uh, and, you know, being in a meditation center and living there. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we went a couple times and we started getting even more and more enthusiastic and we started sharing our enthusiasm with the re rest of the staff. And before you know it, there was a few people down, going down to the tennis courts, and after a while there was maybe six or seven of us started playing tennis. And then someone had the brilliant idea that we were going to have a tournament. Uh, that we were going to approach this in a little bit more organized way. Uh, and uh, so we started setting up this tournament. Uh, and we started having, instead of playing tennis, we started playing tennis matches. Uh, you know, we started playing games. And it started getting quite competitive. Uh, and, you know, we were out there and uh, it started getting kind of serious uh, when, we were, when we started playing. And um, what we forgot to do was to be mindful in this process. Um, and uh, what happened over a period of time, oh, there were prizes now for, what, uh, for prizes for the winners. Uh, we're getting very, you know, sophisticated. And, you know, people, some people would lose that day and uh, they would kind of walk off the court somewhat dejected and the winner would be kind of gloating for a couple of days. Uh, and, you know, uh, after a while it was becoming a very, uh, the gist of it was it started becoming a very unpleasant experience. And it, the joy and, and the enthusiasm, of course, was also fading. Um, and af within a short period of time, like two or three weeks, we, everybody basically abandoned the game. Uh, and just everybody put the tennis rackets away and nobody played again and nobody talked about it. <laughs> and what that told me was, first of all, it, it was too bad that we weren't being mindful because if we had been mindful, mindfulness is a protection. You know, it, it allows us to see what we're doing. Uh, it allows wisdom to develop. And if, if, if we had developed our mind, if we had put our attention to what was going on in our minds, instead of responding to all this deep conditioning, you know, this deep conditioning was coming up around com competition and wanting to be the best and wanting to, you know, be good and to, and to, to be appreciated and, and uh, you know, some aggression in there even. You know, uh, all that kind of old conditioning was coming up and it was sweeping our practice away, you know, way under the rug. And we forgot to be mindful. And, and if we had been mindful, we would have begun to see the suffering that we were creating for ourselves. Instead of just enjoying the game and keeping it simple, we, we were turning into something else. It really became an ego thing. And that's the kind of, and that becomes very habitual. And we can do that in our sitting practice. You know, checking out your neighbor. Uh, you know, that person looks really quiet. Uh, nobody's experiencing what I'm experiencing. Uh, you know, uh, self-doubt, you know, comes up a lot in practice. And a lot of that comes up out of comparing, out of our imagination to what somebody else is experiencing. Well, as far as I know, Everybody is experiencing some thinking in their practice right now. And as far as I know, nobody is with the breath from one moment to the next throughout even an entire sitting, as far as I know. I haven't talked to anybody yet that's doing that. So, you know, we're all working, you know. You'd be surprised what's going on in all of our minds. You 
know, you can't tell. You, know, you can imagine. But it's that kind of comparing, evaluating, judging. It interferes with that beginner's mind, that mind that can just be open with what the experience is. We're too busy trying to be experts sometimes. Some of us have this more than others. Others sometimes have an under-evaluation, in a sense, a tremendous fear, you know, and a sense that of not a, a lot of worth or something. And then there's this automatic idea that it can't be done. You know, so even why bother? And, they, and we give up very quickly. And that energy we call self-doubt. That energy we call self-doubt. Another aspect uh, that can kind of block this innate beginner's mind is, is uh, self-image, the kind of image that we have of ourselves. In, in all of us here, you know, there's a strong tendency uh, to have a lot of fixed ideas. A lot of times they're unconscious, but some, sometimes we're painfully conscious of them. Fixed ideas about who we are and what's possible. You know, we, uh, in, in a lot of what we experience, whether it's in practice or whether it's in life, gets filtered through that self-image. Self-doubt, I was just mentioning, uh, is, is an expression in some ways of a self-image. That feeling that one can't do it, that's flowing from self-image. Because the fact is we don't know that we can't do it until we try. And granted, this practice is a gradual development and one needs to be patient and that's one of the qualities that we're we're cultivating, but if we don't try over a period of time, well then, then that questioning, that thinking that we can't do it, uh, is really self-doubt. It's a legacy of the past. It comes out of an image that we have about ourselves. And self-doubt comes up not just in the sitting practice, but in our life. And why it's considered by some teachers to be uh, the most difficult of all the hindrances um, is that it tends to, uh, if we buy it, if we buy into self-doubt, um, it undermines our effort in practice. You know, it makes practice very difficult. It makes meeting experience you know, with fresh energy, with confidence, makes it very difficult. You know, and self-doubt does come up for everybody in practice at some point or another. And what's important, what the, key, the way out of self-doubt is not to convince yourself so much that what you're doing is worthy or, or that you can do it, but it's more or less to begin to recognize and to get to know self-doubt when it does come up to get to know what the subtle expressions of it are. You know, usually self-doubt, that image that we have about ourselves, that uh, oftentimes negative, it comes up under certain conditions. And we need to get to know ourselves, and we also need to get to know the kind of conditions that self-doubt arises under. It, it often arises when things are going not well. You know, usually self-doubt doesn't arise when we're feeling really peaceful and content. But when we're feeling restless or bored or agitated or sleepy, or we're feeling really resistant to the practice or kind of angry or upset or impatient with ourselves, well then self-doubt kicks in. It's really kind of a sequential thing. Those are the right conditions for self-doubt to come up. And the problem with self-doubt is we tend to believe it. it we, we believe that idea about ourselves. We believe those thoughts. 
instead of seeing it, instead of being mindful of self-doubt as a state of mind, because it is a state of mind. It is a state of mind. Instead of being mindful of it and seeing that fact that it's a state of mind, we believe it, we buy into it, and we give up. You know, we get resigned. You know, we, we get discouraged. We despair. And a lot of us don't know what this process is about. We tend to jump. We want progress, and we want progress quick. But it's a long path. It's a lifetime's work, this practice. It doesn't mean that one can't develop quickly or at different times or have insights along the way. We do. We, that would be, that's what keeps us going sometimes, you know, is, is those moments of peace and contentment. But spiritual maturity and growth takes time. It develops gradually out of a mindfulness practice. And so in working with self-doubt, when it comes up, and it can come up, it can come up in spades, uh, especially early on in the retreat, and especially if you're new. See, some of the old students, you know, uh, old students meaning people who have been practicing for a while, you know, they may be experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing as a new student, except for one thing, that maybe they've been there before. In a sense, maybe they know that 215 sitting might be sleepy. And there's more acceptance you know, at the beginning, when you first come, there's a lot of expectations that the retreat's going to unfold. You've carved out seven days. You know, there's a lot of investment. And then, you know, half your sittings are sleepy and the other half are restless. Well, uh, it, it, it can get discouraging. You know, it can get discouraging. All the students begin to expect it. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it, uh, when that sleepiness comes up in the afternoon, there's more equanimity. You know, they begin, because why? Not because they're special or we're special or any of that. It's because they've brought their mindfulness to sleepiness and they've begun to work with it. You know, we begin to learn with mindfulness. Everybody begins to learn with mindfulness that these particular states of mind, they arise under certain conditions and they pass away. We don't have to identify with them. We don't have to resist them. If you wanted to be sleepy for the rest of your life, uh, you couldn't even cling to that experience. You know, it's not going to happen. You know, I mean, you can feel very sleepy sitting, but then you stand up and you start walking, and where's that state of mind? Who was that person that was sleepy? It's gone. It was just the state of mind that arose under certain conditions. And sitting intensively in silence is one of the conditions that sleepiness comes up. A lot of times we arrive and we're tired, we're sleepy, you know, we're burnt out, we're stressed out, we come, we want a vacation, and now here we are sitting eight hours a day. Not exactly a vacation, but at the same time, there's a process that's going on. There's a, 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 a process that's unfolding that's not in our control. Um, uh, our expectations are sometimes not met. We get disappointed. Um, and uh, older students, people have been practicing for a while, w- have been working with those states of mind. And there's not so much reactivity to it, and it allows the state of mind to be there and to pass through more quickly. There's less resistance. You know, it's interesting, almost, it's usually old students that will stand up in the hall when they're feeling really sleepy. You know, if you're new, it's easy to be self-conscious, you know, you don't know what the ground rules are, uh, you don't want to stand up, you might feel a little self-conscious, but people who have been practicing for a while, they'll stand up because they've been there. They know that that's a helpful way of working with sleepiness. Stand up, you know, stand up, get a little bit of energy. Stand up for two or three minutes or five minutes if you're really falling over sitting. Try it, see what happens. You can still be mindful of the breath standing up one of the four postures the Buddha talked about. 
So feel free to do that. But having that freedom, you know, that fluidity to, to find out what works for you when the energy is low. Bring up the energy when the restlessness is there. How to work with the restlessness. Balance it out. Try to do a little bit of concentration practice. Do some walking. Try some slow walking as a way of balancing the restlessness. Or go outdoors and get a little bit more space. It was a skillful means. And so what I'm saying is, is that freedom, a lot of freedom has to do with learning how to meet experience, you know, with real openness, with, with the intention to learn you know, rather than the intention to do or the intention to become. And that's kind of how you want to always hold your experience, whether you're new or old. You know, the new students, the new folks here that are practicing, they have some advantages too because, you know, they know they don't know. And that can be an advantage. And it's something that people who have been practicing for a while can easily forget. So keep that mind that doesn't know. You know Sansanin used to talk about the don't know mind, Zen master that I studied with, keeping that mind. that doesn't know. That's with each moment of your experience in a very new way. And the practice is mindfulness. It's not some ideal that we now have to strive for. It just means paying attention paying attention and nurturing that ability to be mindful. Coming back over and over again to the present moment. That's the practice right now. Keep coming back to what is happening right now. Not what could be happening or should be happening or shouldn't be happening. But come back to, to the now, to here, to what's happening right now, to, the, to this breath, this moment. And every time you do, you strengthen that ability to be mindful. You're nurturing that ability to be mindful. It's getting stronger whether you recognize it or not. You'll be surprised you know, when you finally do leave this retreat at the end of the week. And that will come. It will come quick enough. It will come a lot faster probably than you can imagine right now. Um, but you'll see that there are, there's a lot more mindfulness. You know, where a lot of times we focus on the fact that there isn't so much mindfulness. And a lot of times, at the you know, when you first start practicing, that's what you see. Oh, I'm never mindful. I'm never mindful. But mindfulness is growing. Mindfulness is developing. As long as you keep coming back to the present moment, you're nurturing mindfulness. That quality is getting stronger and stronger. You know, and here we have this ability, this opportunity on retreat, this very precious opportunity on retreat. Not that it's that different than our everyday lives. I mean, outwardly it is, but inwardly we still have our minds. But we have this ability to, uh, this, this, this uh, environment rather, it's, it's here to nurture mindfulness. It's here to tell you, look, you don't need to be doing a lot. What you want to do, where you want your effort to go, very soft, gentle effort, where you want it to go is to the present moment, to keep coming back to the present moment, and then let things unfold the way they are. Nobody can control how it's going to unfold. But we, can, we do have that power to be present for it, to meet life in a very fresh, open way. And, and then we can really learn. We can learn what's possible, 
not only learn it, but realize it. Realize it for ourselves. All the books and everything that we've read and heard isn't enough. We need to taste freedom for ourselves. And so we need to do the practice. It's as simple as that. And this practice of mindfulness is so much more powerful than all these other different states of mind that we're going through. so much more powerful than all these impermanent experiences that we're having. It's so powerful that it can include all of these experiences. And so now the time is to to keep putting the effort in. Be aware when self-doubt arises. Don't let it undermine your effort. You're here for a good reason. Use your time. Okay, let's have a few moments of silence. Thank you, and uh, we move into the walking practice, and we'll meet back here at 8.45 for our final sit-together tonight.